0: All right, so we're uh, we're going to be back in uh, Esther chapter eight again this morning. Um, last well, it was a couple of weeks ago when I was in it before, and I kind of took a different approach Uh last time we talked about chapter eight, and I'm going to take another approach because I just there's so much in chapters eight, nine, and eight, well even ten. There's only three verses, but there's a lot in these last few verses uh, chapters of Esther, and so I don't want to go too fast, although. I did have, in my mind, I'm thinking, I can get all this done in one day. And it's like, no, probably not. But uh, just think about something here. I call this 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 topic a passion for souls. And uh, you know, one of the very first evidences, if, I don't know if you ever think about this, but one of the first evidences of a genuine conversion. Think about your own conversion. When you got saved, one of the greatest evidences of a genuine conversion ought to be your desire that others may share with you so great a salvation. Amen. Isn't it right? I mean, you know, we tell people all the time, you may not know the Bible, you you may not know anything about what God's Word says, you may not be able to disciple somebody, but you know you got saved. What do you do with that? Go tell somebody else how to get saved. That's the, the, tell people about the salvation that is available to us, uh, to them. It was available to us, be. it's available to everybody, and so we have a responsibility. We hear often, we call that a passion for souls. Do we have a passion for souls? And in chapter 8, we really, what we actually see uh, for us to, to, to grab a hold of is, is a passion for souls in chapter 8, both by God and, and uh, Esther. And so... In the case of some people, you know that that passion may grow. Uh, in some people, that passion may wane. Uh, in some people, that passion, um, you know, uh, just it'll 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 be kindled by by a fire that you you need to keep effort. You need to keep doing something about it, and you have to move yourself to make something happen. And uh, and that's what we're going to see. So, but it starts with this. If you remember what Peter says in First Peter chapter five and verse six, he says the Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. Now, sometimes we use that perp- that verse as uh, God is going to lift me up and you know make me something, but that's not necessarily what's important. There is that we that is that the the, the mighty hand of God is going to exalt you in the life of another person if you're humble enough to do what you're supposed to do. So you have to be ready to serve God. To be the conduit for somebody's salvation, um, so the book of Esther just and it's interesting in chapter eight because there's a there's a breakover here in chapter eight. There's a there's a thing that switches and changes. The the book of Esther is actually a, a two part book. I don't know if you've ever seen that before, but chapters one to seven uh, you could call them the historical chapters. They're the historical chapters, chapters one to seven. You know, and everybody likes chapters one to seven because it's 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 the history, it's the information, the story. Okay, I was listening to myself one day, and all kinds of noise was coming out of it. So I don't know if this is going to be good or not. I don't know if anybody listens to that, but anyway, Um, you know, so. So there's this there's this historical aspect because we like that right. That's why people like to read Samuel and and uh, uh, Exodus. Nobody likes Le- Leviticus, but uh, you know, but those other books, you know, Genesis and and all of that. We like because it it's history, and and we can wrap our mind around. It. It's like a movie that's taking place. And chapters one to seven is that it's the very same thing. It, so it's a historical aspect of the book. In fact, you could say every Old Testament book. Uh, has some sort of historical element in it. and even the, even the prophetic books and sometimes you, you kind of we weave, weave through that and you wander around in it but but every every book, every has every Old Testament book has a historical element. and what what is that doing? It's setting the stage for the doctrine that's coming. that's That's what the historical part of a book is. It's setting the stage for uh, for the doctrinal stories that is coming. in fact, I'm teaching in the Bible Institute of teaching uh, typology, and one of the things I tell the students is that that which is in the Old Testament as typology is a picture, uh, reveals to us a prophetic doctrinal truth in the New Testament, and so it's the same thing. Even even within the book, not that everything in in Esther is a type, but the story lays out the doctrine or or or, word I'm looking for it it um. Uh, defines what the doctrine is going to be. It kind of lays out the pattern. So, so we can get our mind wrapped around even Paul. Paul's writings are the same way too, right? Paul writes, you know, he's, he, he talks about doctrine in, uh, in part of his letters, and in the other part of his letters he's, he's laying out application. And so, so this is just how God works. He gives us the, the tool that we need to understand what he's saying. And sometimes, you know, we miss that. Sometimes we, we miss it, and and it's easy in chapter eight to miss that there's a that there's a switch that takes place at that point right there. Uh, and so we can get our mind wrapped around the history because its story lies chiefly in the first seven chapters. And so we understand that. Uh, and it's about a people lost. If you had to kind of quantify what's in chapters one to seven, it's it's a story about a people lost without hope. That's really what the first seven chapters are about. It's about a story about people that are lost without hope. Now, we all think it's a story about Esther, right? Because, I mean, she's the, she's the centerpiece. She's the name of the book. She she is the queen. She So we think that that's the, the focus, but it's not. The focus is lost people with no hope. That's really what's going on in Esther. There's lost people and there's no hope. Um, we saw the providence of God. We talk about providence a lot. And how that providence elevated a poor orphan Jewish girl to the dignity of being a queen, at a time when her people were exposed to the greatest danger uh, than they had almost ever been exposed to. Uh, you know, they they were in wars. They were you know Nehemiah building and you know rebuilding the walls. Ezra rebuilding the city, uh, the temple. Um, you know, so all of those things they've been in, in captivity. Uh, and of course, this is relative to all of that. But at the same time, um, we we don't we, we lose track of the fact that that they are the people, Jew, the Jewish people, Israel. Uh, they're in danger here in this situation. And so we saw how her relative, who that would be Mordecai, and she owed a lot to him. You think about everything that she had she had gotten from him, uh, and um, when when he had been. Um, you know, he was under threat, even himself. You know, direct threat of his own life uh, by uh, by Haman, the the enemy of the Jews. But he was unexpectedly raised up to power as well. And so so we see how this guy named Haman, we've talked about him a lot, how his desire could only be satisfied by the annihilation of a whole race of people. Isn't that amazing? And, you know, we can think of people in our own history, you know, the last 20 years or... 100 years or whatever, how far back we want to go, Hitler, who just desired to annihilate an entire race of people just because he hated them. And it's an amazing thing to even consider. So um, so we've seen, we saw that. We saw what's going on with that. And so he had received the doom for which he had merited... Uh, what he wanted to do, he wanted his people killed, and he ended up beaten, dying himself. And, and of course, he was hanged upon the gallows, which he was going to that she built for Mordecai. So, in all of these events, we have traced God's hand. That's the providence. We talk about providence in this in this story a lot. We've traced God's hand as clearly as as if His name is on every page, and I do believe it is. Even Jesus Christ said, uh, the, "The you know just look in the Old Testament. Everything everything talks about Me." And, uh, and so so the second part of the story begins in chapter 8 and it covers all of chapter 8, chapter nine and that little bitty chapter 10, which will we're, you know, we're going to get started next week hopefully, and we'll wrap all of that up um, um, And we'll try to conclude next week. but uh, chapter nine, chapter 8, nine, and 10, these are celebration chapters. If I had to catalog them or, or put a title to them, I would call them celebration chapters. So you have historical chapters and celebration chapters. It's a celebration on the soul saved from the enemy, and that's an, that's that's what's really cool about about what's happening here. We have we have a whole race of people who are uh, under threat of death. They have no hope. They 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 are going to die. Supposedly. Uh, but now we're going to celebrate their salvation. And so, in the concluding chapters of this book, we have to mark, we have to mark a series of things that take place that secures the Jewish people from deliverance, um, and secures their deliverance and their enlargement. Uh, <laughs> You know, and we'll talk a lot about the feast. Uh, that covers the feast of what's called the Feast of Purim. We'll break all that down and, and study that out. The Jews even celebrate the Feast of Purim even today still. Okay, so starting in verse 1, uh, we kind of talked a little bit about verses 1 to 8 last time again, but I just want to go back through it again because I want to look at this from the sense of passion for souls. So um, let me get to my page Starting in verse 1. On that day the king Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman the Jews' enemy unto Esther the queen. And Mordecai came before the king, and Esther had told what he was unto her. And the king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it unto Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. And... um, and Esther spake yet again before the king and fell down at his feet and besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite and his device that he had devised against the Jews. Then the king held out the golden scepter towards Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king, verse 5 says, and said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and in the things seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews which are in the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that shall come upon my people, or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Then the king Ahasuerus said unto Esther the the queen, and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him they have hanged upon the gallows, because he laid his hand upon the Jews. Write ye also for the Jews, as it liketh you, in the king's name and seal it with the king's ring for writing which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring may no man reverse. And so we have this this they come together here and it's pretty interesting. So um, one thing that's interesting is what's happening in chapter eight. It's the beginning of chapter eight. We're still at the end of chapter seven. Where was that at? That was at the that was at the queen's palace, right? That was at her. The banquet was taking place, and so so. You know, Haman, is, Haman was taken out immediately at the end of chapter seven, and he was executed. Uh, the, the king is there, the queen is there, and now Mordecai shows up. And so there's a, so there's this unity of, of the story. We don't want to lose track of all that, what's happening, but there's a transition that's taking place. And so um, Mordecai is summoned to the queen's palace and brought to the presence of the queen and the queen and the, and the king. Now we can only assume uh, at this moment. Um, that he was there to replace Haman at the banquet. Uh, it doesn't actually say why Mordecai shows up. It doesn't say why other than he just he came doesn't know did the king summon him? Did the queen summon him? but he shows up at the, at the, at the point of, of the beginning of the chapter here um, and the, the king takes off the ring I guess before Haman was taken out of the room you know they covered his head he grabs his ring off his finger he says you don't get that ring anymore. And he keeps the ring. But then he ends up turning it over to, to Mordecai. Uh, and then the queen, the queen then gives Mordecai the estate of Haman. Uh, everything that Haman had. And, um, and so the king, it, it's interesting about this king. This is a problem. But is, thank goodness our king is not like, not like this. But this king is a random, he's a random guy. He just makes random decisions just off the cuff. Just like, oh, I'll do that. Oh, I'll do that. I'll do this other thing. And so... So he makes random decisions and sudden changes, which are recorded in the first part of the book. Right, the feasts—he had all these feasts. He got rid of his first wife, you know, just for no real reason at all. Um, He he wanted to parade her around in front of a bunch of drunken people. I mean, you know, that's that's a pretty random thing. You know, he has uh, no—I guess you could say he has no morals, no ethics, no no boundaries. I like that, yeah. Uh, And so. Um, we should all be reminded of the suddenness of Haman's rise and fall. I mean, just you know, we don't even really know why Haman was was uh, was lifted up uh, to to such a, a high a th- a position of authority. Um, and the unexpected promotion of Esther and Mordecai, how all of this stuff had this this king just he just kind of makes random decisions i guess I guess as long as you do the law, you're okay, but you can make random decisions and do whatever you want, at least in his book anyway and so at the beginning of chapter three, remember the king elevated Haman the Agagite to the second position of authority. but we just don't have any real reason why you know I know people have speculated um but I think those speculations really, and we've talked about that, so I won't go back there, but uh, I think that they're really, they really don't hold water, at least in, in the way I see the study. But um, um, it's pretty common behavior, though, of a despotic uh, ruler. They just, they just randomly do whatever they want to do, uh, despotic governments and so on and so forth. Um, and so... The will of the king being arbitrary and his rule of action being usually nothing else other than his own fancy or his impulse um, uh, to the person that he trusts the most at at that time. He's like, oh, I like you, I'll I'll do that for you. And so while on the other hand, influences from without may in an instant overturn that person's schemes and subject him to the consequences of the royal displeasure. Because that's what happened, right? You know, he, he lifted up Haman and then he lowered Haman pretty fast, pretty quick. Okay, so so at that point now in this, in this conversation, Mordecai is on the scene, and Esther, uh, starting in verse 3, she she goes back again and, and lays out her petitions and her requests. And um, Esther spake yet again before the king and fell down at his feet and besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman. So... It's really interesting. Where's her focus? What is her focus on? Her focus is not on Haman. Her focus is not on Haman's stuff. Her focus is not on Haman's power. She's not asking for Haman's power. She, she doesn't want that. She doesn't care about that. She did not request his hope. What was Haman's hope? Sometimes we have to think about these kind of things. What was Haman's hope? What did he want? He wanted to reign. He wanted to be king. He wanted to be in charge, kind of like Satan. You know, he wanted to be in charge. He wanted to rule over everything. Isaiah fourteen. You know, he wanted to exalt himself and lift himself up. That's what Haman's hope was. Esther didn't care about that. She wasn't interested in that. She knew who the king was. She knew what was going on. And so, um, you know, she didn't. She didn't want his hope. But she does become his heir. I talked about a little bit about that a uh, couple of weeks ago. That she, she received everything that he received in order to do with it what she wanted to do with it, or what she felt would be the right thing to do with it. And she, and she did, and she gave it to Mordecai. In Proverbs chapter 13 verse 22, it says, A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of a sinner is laid up for the just. And so that's usually what happened. God, God takes the wealth of the sinner, and he allows that to be used for his glory and for his honor. And that's what he did with Haman's uh, possessions here as well. So, she goes into detail with the king about her lineage and her history. So, Remember, he two times the king asks you know, at the first banquet, at the second banquet, at the beginning of the second banquet. What's your what's your petition? What's your request? And so she gives that information, and she says, "Haman wants to kill all, all my kill me and kill all my people." Well, now she has a chance to really explain what she means and go into detail about what's happening, and uh, and so she goes into that detail with the king about her lineage and about her history, so he can understand how everything manifests at this point. Uh, you know he's because he's a random guy and makes random decisions off the cuff and just doing whatever he wants. He's got somebody needed to sit him down and say, "Look, this is what's happening. You need to you need to know what's going on. You need to understand." And she's not like chastising him, but she is trying to explain it to him. And so she has a she has a chance now to go further into detail about her request and her background, her petition which we talked about before, is to let her life be given to her. And you can go back to chapter 7 and verse 2 and see the same thing there. So her petition is to let her life be given to her. And then her request, that's a broader request, is to, um, she requests the life of her people. So it's two things, basically life. She's, She's looking for life. She's not looking for possessions. She's not looking for power. She's looking for life. So the subject of her petition to the king was life, and it mirrors the effectual intercessory prayer that we should all be praying. And we talked a little bit about that last week, you know, in 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. I exhort, therefore, that first of all supplication, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men. So we do need to be praying for everybody. So her request... And she recognizes this, and sometimes we need to recognize when we put ourselves in a position like where Esther is at, and we should put ourselves in positions like Esther uh, for the souls of people. Uh, she, she recognizes herself as a sacrifice. She recognizes herself as a sacrifice. And what do I mean by that? Because um, she says, if I have found favor in thy sight, and if it please the king, let my life be given to me. Well, what if it didn't please the king in his randomness and decision making? She would be. In fact, what we've talked about before, what is she actually asking? Change the law. She's change the law. And he can't change the law. So she's asking for for a, a law to be changed that she knows can't be changed. And so she's, she's willing to take it upon herself for the souls of people... Let's do something. Let's make a change, and uh, and so the prayer uh, that she's making here, the request is an intercessory prayer, uh, declaring that the Jews are her people. So she put, she she possesses in her heart; these are her people. These are people that she cares about, and she wants their she wants their souls to be saved. She's not even considering them to be the king's people, which they are, because they're part of his provinces. You know, 127 provinces in the kingdom, and uh, and so she she sees them as her people. And then in verses seven and eight, um, the king's response, the king's response kind of parallels. Uh, I won't go into depth on this again. Last week or two weeks ago, we went into this about Isaiah chapter 65 and 66, but. The way the king responds kind of parallels how God defends Israel. How God is defending Israel. He does the same thing. Now, he, the king is not a type of Christ. He's not a type of God. I told you before, you know, we don't we don't want to try to make types. And I've told this the HBI students, you don't make too many things out of types. Or try to make types out of too many things because you can get, get yourself messed up. But um, the king, his authority, his authority does come from God. Because all authority comes from God, and so uh, so we recognize that part of it. Um, so to answer Esther, the king said in verse seven that he has he, he's he's just reminding both her and Mordecai. Okay, so this is what I can do. In verse seven, what did he do? He he says uh, the king of Hesterer said unto Esther the queen to, and to Mordecai. I have given Esther the house of Haman and him they have hanged upon the gallows because he laid his hand upon the Jews. I've given you everything that you... I've given you... I've recognized your, your desire and I'm trying to respond. So, at least in this case right here, he's not being random. He's actually being uh, uh, beneficial, I guess. Benef- Benef- I want to say benefactual, but I don't think that's the word... Anyway, you know, he, he is trying to do the right thing. So uh, he's given Esther what she needed. They've hanged Haman, so she doesn't have to worry about Haman anymore. And in verse 8, he tells her to take action, that she and Mordecai uh, equally uh, can establish equally powerful laws. So, uh, verse 8 again, write, write ye also for the Jews as it liketh you, so you make a law that you're that you're comfortable with, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's ring, um, and uh, and seal it, and nobody can change that law either. So so we have two things that are happening here. They're they're given permission to to decide how to work against a a bad law, and that's what's going on. In verse 8, he tells her to take action. And then the king held out his scepter back in verse 4 and reflected his permission to take action as she and he felt necessary to remember uh, a significant truth. So what we see here in verse 8... she says this, how can I endure to see the evil come upon my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Because she doesn't want to see that. That's, that's what she's fearing. She doesn't want to see that. So the king acts, uh, the king's actions and his words, there's lessons for all of us that we have to escape from the evil that is against us. So there's always evil against us, but we have to escape from that. The lesson um, here is that the removal of a wicked person from the world does not at all once remedy the evils that are in the world. The evil is evil is always present. Um, so you could you could actually say it this way: the evil which men do lives after them. The evil which men do live after them. And uh, and so Haman had suffered. The penalty due is crimes, but his his law that he had written still there still on the books it's still going to happen the 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 uh, the war is still going to take place because you can't change the law now I guess an individual person could ignore the law, but that's probably not a good idea because it's a law and it's the king's law so um Esther knew this, and this evil that, that she recognized, that's what she wanted remedied by the king, and she, he basically put it in her her hands and in Mordecai's hands. And the same thing is written uh, about the Messiah in, in Isaiah chapter 50, 65 and 66. And the Messiah's promise there that God will one day create a new new earth and a new heaven as the home for the righteous. But so we can, you know, here's the thing, um, whether this, I don't know if Esther knew that about Isaiah. But I would have to say that she probably did because Mordecai probably taught her uh, the, the Scriptures. So just think about that for just a minute. She's, she's actually going off of what she learned about the Bible, about the, about the Scriptures, that God is going to protect my people I'm asking the king to allow me to do something or do something to, to let God, uh, not let God, let God do anything, but um, that uh, uh, she's going to be able to see God work because she knows what God did for, for her people and what the promises are in the Old Testament. Isaiah 65, 18 says, Be ye glad and rejoice forever in that one night. In that which I create, for behold, I create Jerusalem, a rejoicing, and her people, a joy. And of course, when that that joy, that whole concept of joy rolls right into chapter 9, because chapter 9 is a, is, a, is about a, f- a festival and a feast. So whether the lesson was taught to Esther when she grew up in Mordecai's home, we don't know. But there's a burden in her heart to do the right thing. This is why Bible study is important, for even for little kids. So that when they grow up, right? the Bible says, you know, train them up in a way that they should go and when they're old they will not depart from it. If they know the Bible when they're learning small, it'll apply in their life later and maybe they don't even realize it. Mean, almost in a, in a, I hate to say a subconscious way, but in a way that makes a difference because they've learned what the Word of God says. They've learned about God in a way that now they can make application in real life Later on as an adult. And that's an important aspect I think it was what what we see here with Esther. So you know, there's no fear in the declaration of her petition or her request. She's not she doesn't fear the king to make this request. She knows that she could lose her life for asking the law to be changed, but she's not in fear of, of asking for that. And we should never be in fear of asking for somebody's soul either. But sometimes we do we get, in, we get in fear of like well I don't know if I should say anything and we shouldn't we shouldn't. We should just just be bold, be speak, have passion for their souls. So it, Esther demonstrated a very calmness when I mean she's on, she, she she knelt down in front of the king uh, and, she, and she spoke what she needed to say. Um, she spoke strong language, um, but at any rate, it's open, it's honest, and it's above board. She didn't whisper into the king's ears. Uh, she didn't. There's no secret plotting to supplant the prime minister, which was was Haman at the time. Every word uh, is uttered in, the man, in, in a man's hearing and to his face. She's talking directly to him, you know. And sometimes, sometimes we don't want to talk directly to people and tell them about their about their need to be saved. So um, the accuser... Uh, became the accused in front of God of the universe. We know what Jesus Christ said in in uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 23. He turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things of, the, of God, but those that be of men. And uh, and so he's just reminding him, Satan, this is what you're doing. And Satan is an example of Haman there, okay. So then we get, um, so so that's the conversation between Esther. She she lays out more detail about why this is important to her, and then we see Mordecai's actions in order to reverse the law of the king, starting in verse nine. Then were the king's scribes called at that time in the third month, that is the month seven, on the three and twentieth day of thereof, and it is the, and it was written, according to all that Mordecai commanded unto the Jews and to the lieutenants and the deputies and the rulers of the provinces, which are from India unto Ethiopia, a hundred and twenty-seven provinces, uh, unto every province according to the writing thereof, and every people after their language and to the Jews according to their writing and according to their language. And he wrote in the king Ahasuerus' name and sealed it with the king's ring and sent letters by post on horseback, riders on mules, camels, and young dromedaries, wherein the king granted the Jews, which were in every city, to gather themselves together and to stand for their life and to destroy, to slay, to cause, to perish, all the power of the people and province, that would assault them, both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. So I won't, I won't read down through verse 14. But I mean I don't know how, how accurate this is. Somebody really wanted to check this, but I read that verse 9 is the longest verse in the Old Testament. It had 90 words in it. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but that's what I read. So it's interesting. That's a long verse. So... You can do with that whatever you want. Um, Okay, so the same men that penned the letters of destruction by Haman were now engaged in penning a letter of the authority to defend against the coming battle. And I think it's interesting that Haman or that uh, Mordecai used the same people and he wrote to the same recipients. they're the same ones that Haman dispatched letters to. So you have the lieutenants, so it was to the military, uh, the governors, the local government uh, in each province, the rulers of the people, local leadership, you know, mayors and sheriffs and things like that. Uh, the people themselves, everyone was tasked with the destruction of the people. The one group of people that that Mordecai wrote to that Haman did not write to was the Jews. Haman, Haman did not write to to the Jews, but Mordecai did at the end of verse nine, and to the Jews according to their writing and according to their language. So he wrote it in Hebrew and gave it and gave it to the Jews, and and so uh, the commandment again was sealed with the ring. The the writing was authorized. Um, The writing was authorized in the king's name, not in Mordecai's name, because it is recognized that the authority comes from the highest authority, which is the king. And so the command authorized the Jews to gather, to stand for their life. This this is what they get to do. They get to gather, they get to stand for their life, they get to destroy, to slay, to cause, to perish, all the power of the people in the provinces that would assault them, regardless of age or gender. So if you're coming after a Jew, you're going to come for a fight. And that's what's going to happen. Uh, they were authorized to take a spoil if they so desired, which uh, ultimately they didn't. Um, most of them didn't anyway. Um, they were uh, The command was a one-day event uh, for, the, for the battle. And there can be no missing this. You, when you think about it, uh, this is what the church should be doing all the time. The church should go to battle together. And we don't, we don't, our churches, you know, when you think about churches worldwide today, we are a dysfunctional body. You know, we fight against ourselves more than we fight against the enemy. We consider our other denominations the enemy instead of considering Satan and, and, and his uh, desires as our enemy. So we, we should, all of our, the church should, uh, we've advocated the position of defense of truth way too many times. And we need to we need to change that. We need to come together and rally together. Um, There's a parallel whether when we gather in prayer, when we gather in partnership, when we gather in mission, we gather in ministry. We are we're in a spiritual battle, and sometimes I think we lose sight of that. You know, in Ephesians chapter six, verses twelve and thirteen, says we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. And Paul is writing that passage of Scripture to the church, to tell the church to stand, to, to, to come together, to be, to be uh, unified towards the enemy, because we wrestle against not, not just flesh and blood, this wasn't a flesh and Haman's battle was a flesh and blood battle. Mordecai's battle was a spiritual battle, and so we got to realize what's going on there. And so, uh, when when uh, when he wrote this 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 edict or this law, um, the Jews rejoiced, and there wasn't much battle taking place after when this happened. I think I think a lot of the. Uh, the non-Jewish people that were part of the provinces, they already knew who God was because they knew Israel's history. You know, when you think about that for just a minute, uh, they knew what, what God had done, you know, getting them out of Egypt. They knew what God had done uh, with um, uh, Jericho. They knew what God had done uh, with, with Israel's people. And of course, they knew the bad things as well. But... You know, do you want to go to battle with with the people of the God of the universe that's the that's the threat or the uh, the fear that the lost world had towards Israel because they knew his they knew their God and shouldn't shouldn't have the lost fear our fear fear the God of the church and sometimes the church doesn't even fear the God of the church. And so, so we got to kind of keep it, keep an eye on that. Uh, and then, and then verses fifteen and sixteen. Mordecai went out. Um, you know, so the the law was sent out. Copies of the writing was sent out. in Verse thirteen, uh, the post, everything went out. Mordecai, verse fifteen, went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel, blue and white, and with great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple and the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor well of course they did now they know that they they can defend themselves and I know we could get into a whole discussion about self-defense out of this passage here but I think the Bible does teach that very clearly especially in this passage here you can defend yourself uh, but that's not what we want to talk about right now. Mainly when it's in verse sixteen, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's law commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast, a good day, and many of the people of the land became Jews for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. Well, oh, what that's uh they they converted themselves, they converted the people. Just because, you know, do I fight against the Jews who, whose God is the God of the universe, or do I become part of them? And I think that's a pretty cool statement that he's like, "We're going to become Jews. Or we're going to become Christians. We're going to get saved." And so, um, and so anyway, so Shushan rejoiced, which I think is interesting because Shushan did not rejoice. Um, I think it was in chapter. I don't remember now the chapter, but when Mordecai or when Haman wrote the law, when he wrote that law, it says Shushan was perplexed. What's going on? What's happening here? So um, uh, but before we get to that, let me read this uh, this passage in Psalm chapter 97, verses 10 to 12, um, because this is kind of what's happening with with the rejoicing that they're having in Shushan. It says, "Ye that love the Lord hate evil." You can't do both. If you that love the Lord hate evil, he preserveth the souls of his saints. He delivereth them out of the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. So the Jews of Esther's day, they had every occasion to prove the truth of these words. They're rejoicing over the fact that God is protecting them. Sometimes God moves in our lives and we don't we don't give him the credit for protecting us. And that's exactly what's happening here. God is protecting them. He's moving. You know, we everybody said, well, you don't see God in the book of Esther. Yeah, you do. He's all over the place. So in the place of darkness and the place of sorrow, grief, and dishonor uh, that that had been theirs, um, they could rejoice in a fourfold blessing of the Lord even though they did not make mention of his name. So... They could rejoice. Uh, th- th- that blessing was not limited to the city of Shushan either. It says, it goes on and it says in verse 16 that they're rejoicing in every province and every city. So people rejoicing and sat and just praising God all over the, the, the kingdom. And so the complete... Re- 3, verse 15, the end of it.
1: Is that where it says... The
0: king and came and sat down to drink, but the city Shushan... Was perplexed. They were perplexed. Yep. Thank you. Now maybe they were perplexed before because the people, the law, the the non-Jewish people knew that the that the law, the commandment, was to execute the Jews. And now the people know that the Jews have a chance to defend themselves. But they, you know, what they also know? They know that Haman's gone. Mm-hmm. I mean the people are maybe they're rejoicing because this guy is no longer in charge. You know, God has removed an enemy of, of people. And so I don't maybe a little bit of a stretch, but I think that that's that there's some some reasonableness in that. So he had so many enemies. Haman had all kinds of enemies and they they're all rejoicing at his removal. And maybe there were so many Jews who were now praising God, as a Jew is now in high authority, because Mordecai is in charge. So both on both sides of those kind of things. And then there's a feast that is started in verse 17. Now this feast that is started, it's not it's not a feast. Uh, there's a lot of feasts in the book of Leviticus. They're, they're uh, religious feasts uh, or festivals, and they they're tied together to a, uh, Jesus Christ and, and the example of His sacrifice. Um, this feast is a different kind of feast. Uh, it's the kind of feast that that um, uh, is, is mentioned several times in in the scriptures, like uh, with um, in Genesis chapter 19. Uh, when the angels visited Lot, there was a feast uh, in Genesis chapter 21. When Abraham made the same, made uh, had a feast for Isaac when he was weaned. That kind of thing. But those are celebratory, and we'll talk a lot about that uh, next week. We'll break that all down. But let me just kind of wrap up everything here for just because the study has been where does God want you? Where's where does God want you to be uh, in this study? Think about the Philippian jailer for just a minute. You know what it says in the Philippians in Acts chapter sixteen, verse thirty. There's a question that is asked. Uh, the Philippian jailer asks after the earthquake, and he's, he's about ready to kill himself. And Paul says, "Don't do anything. We're still here." And you know, they they go outside and they meet. And he said, "What What did the Philippian jailer question? What did he say? might remember?" "What must I do to be saved?" "What must I do to be, to be saved?" Okay. So maybe there's a better way to ask that question. For us, maybe there's a better way to ask this question. Uh, what about asking God? What must I do that they be saved? What must I do that they be saved? So the Philippian jailer is focused on himself. Giving my life—that uh, was the petition of, of Esther, right? I, I'm, my petition is my life. But then she says, "My my request is that my people be saved." What can I do, Esther says, that my people be saved? What can we do? What what can this church do? What can us as an individual do so that somebody can be saved? That's, you know, because what do we typically do? Well, I'm going to pray that they get saved. Which is fine. I'm not chastising that because we should pray that. But where do we put the onus at? Who's responsible for getting somebody saved when we pray, God, would you save, you know, my nephew? I'm, I'm expecting God to do it. And it's like, I'm off the hook. I don't have to worry about it. Uh, no. I, you know, What must I do to be saved? What must I do that they be saved? That's the question. That's, that's where God wants you at. So what willingness are you ready to give in order to providentially be used by God to be in the right place at the right time with the right reason so somebody can ask the jailer question to you? Because that's kind of what we do, right? That's why we have ministry here. That's why we have activities in this church. That's why we do VBS. That's why we do uh, church in the park. That's why we do um, harvest party. That's why we do all the things. So that so that w- what can we do so that we can be in a position to hear somebody say, "How can I get saved?" But we want them to know that they can get saved. So we have to talk about getting saved. We don't just we don't just have a party and say, "Okay, here, you know, there's the there's the duck." Uh, pawn, you just go, you know, win some prizes, you know. Um, I mean, that's fine. But in the middle of all of that, we should be telling people, God loves you, you know, and have that conversation with people, and and put people in a position so that they they sense there's something going on here, and I think God is moving in my life. How do I get saved? Esther's salvation was assured simply because she petitioned the king for her life, but she also petitioned the king for the lives of all of her people. And then she turned to her uncle, which is, we've talked about before, a type of the Holy Spirit, in verse 2, which established him as the comforter, the teacher, the convictor of sin in attempting to destroy God's people. Um, He was convicting the the, people of that. That's the fact that Mordecai was the one that wrote the wrote the law, um, that changed everybody's attitude, and some people became Jews. That's you know that's the type of the Holy Spirit. So, what will you do? Where will you be when it comes to the salvation of the lost? Will you just pray that God save them, or will you pray that God move you to be the sacrifice for the salvation of other people? So, I think that that's a pretty pretty. Uh, uh, Pretty good lesson out of chapter eight. There's a lot of doctrine there. There's a lot of things going on there. But, but at the end of the day, what we see is is Esther had a passion for her people, and we need to have a passion for our people. Whether it's our individual families, of course, yes, you should have a passion for them. Um, a passion for our community. A passion for our country. Our passion for mission fields, any place. What can we do? What what do we have to do so that? Somebody can be put in a position so that they can ask the question, "What must I do to be saved?" And so, uh, next week we'll get into chapter nine and finish finish up the study on the book of Esther. So let's pray, and uh, and we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the, this uh, example from Esther and in the. Uh, uh, the, the desire that she had her passion for for lost people and um, and for the changes that were made throughout a province or throughout in a kingdom simply because somebody moved according to your will I pray father that every one of us would do the same thing on a regular basis that we would be encouraged um, daily uh, to sacrifice ourselves lord to just to just be where we need to be to to answer the question, to to ask the question, what can we do that somebody might be saved? And help us, Lord, to to make that happen in our life. And we just love you and we praise you. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for the gift of life. And we give you the honor and the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. amen.